The following sermon was preached at Tower View Baptist Church. We are a gospel-centered, relationship-driven church that exists to know, grow in, share, and serve Jesus Christ. We do all this for the glory of God. For more about us, please check out our website at www.towerviewkc.com. Well, I invite your attention to Hebrews chapter 6, and we'll be continuing our series today, which we've been going through since the beginning of the year, which is called Greater Than, the Superiority and Supremacy of Jesus Christ. And today's sermon title is the uh, is, is greater than false hope, greater than false hope. And as we often do, uh, we will read the scripture together and we'll start in verse 13. And I'll be reading out of Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 20. And this is the ESV version, which is our pew Bibles, which we've had for several years now. And hear God's word today. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waiting, waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and all their disputes and oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that, verse 18, by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray today and we will get started. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to hear your word, to teach your word. Lord, even have your word. We, we know so many people have not even ever read the Bible or heard the name Jesus or the gospel or, or who you are and what you stand for. And yet, Lord, we week after week hear the word. May our hearts not get sluggish to use the words of the writer of Hebrews in verse 11. May our focus not get dull. May our uh, eyes and ears always be ready to respond to what you say to us. So, Lord, it's your word. It's, it's, it's your message. It's your everything. Use this in someone's life today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, one doctor said one time that if you leave a person to believe that there is no hope, you basically drive a nail into their coffin. Hope, the doctor says, what people need to live in live in for what lies ahead. Another doctor put it this way. He said, a person can live 70 days without food, 10 days without water, and six minutes without air, but none one second without hope. Hope fosters health, the second doctor says, physical and emotional, and research time and time again affects the physical and emotional health of a person. Well, before... If you're a regular Tower View person, lest you think I've gone into psycho babble or health, wealth, prosperity gospel, we're not referring to a bankrupt secular world. We're not speaking of televangelists trying to sell you something. The bottom line is, is if you have Christ, you have hope. The major theme of Hebrews is the hope that is ours in Christ Jesus, and it keeps us alive and keeps us pressing on all of our days. Because you are saved if you have a hope that is within you. 
When you receive and believe the gospel, you received hope. Not wishful thinking, but rather conviction and encouragement and guarantees of everything we just read. Now, biblical hope is not a stab in the dark, a dream, or a wish. You know, hope in God is grace, is a confident expectation of a guaranteed result. And the biblical story tells us time and time again who God is and how he works in and on behalf of his people so that we would be able to live with realistic expectations, a submissive heart, a wise mind, rest of soul, sturdy hope, and unshakable joy. Biblical hope doesn't just say or affirm or agree with the statement, eh, it's all going to work out in the end, but rather biblical hope affirms that God's end, quote-unquote, is impacting our now. Biblical hope is measured by the generosity of God's heart and the splendor of God's future when he freely gave us his son, Jesus Christ. And the biblical hope that we have is Christ himself and being with him in the life after life after death. So this morning, God promises to provide everything we need, and he will. The question is, is will we live like we believe it? That is with hope and courage. And you are hardwired for hope. What will you place your hope in today? The big idea today is simply God desires us to live in unfailing hope as we press on with diligence and faith. Basically, we're combining what we we finished off last week in chapter 6, verse 11 and 12, and picking up, once again, this theme of hope. And why do we have hope? Well, we have hope because we have the once and for all death of Jesus Christ. And we're getting into that, especially in the summer months ahead as we look towards chapter 7 to 10. We have hope because there's eternal security. We said last week that as Baptists, we often say that phrase, once saved, always saved, and that is true. But perhaps a better phrase is once saved, always preserving. He not only holds us, we're eternally secure, but but the preserving part that he talked about last week is, is what we know as his grace in our lives to the point at which he uses that to make us more like Christ and assures us in the growth of our spiritual lives that we are truly his. So we have hope because Christ died once for all. There's eternal security. There's assurance of our salvation. And the greatest hope we all look forward to is the return of Christ. Now, whether we die before that and we're raised up at the last day, or he calls us home in the time we live where we're alive, God is faithful. So this morning, three compelling reasons to have hope as you press on in your faith. Three compelling reasons to have hope as you press on in faith. We're going to see the unfailing promises of God, the unchangeable purpose of God, and the unforfeitable. In other words, he can't give it up. The unforfeitable presence of God. And I want to remind you that again, since chapter 5, verse 11, we've kind of been in a parenthesis. He's He's talked to those among the, 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 the Hebrew Christians here who have a form of godliness, who are around church a lot, but they don't know Christ. They've never come and, and gone all in for Christ and never repented and believed the gospel. Or simple language, they're not saved. They're not regenerate. They've never been forgiven of their sin. And yet they continue to be around God's people. And he's evangelistically called them to faith and repentance in Christ alone. And last week, he reassured those among them who were Christian that they need to continue to show forth the signs of salvation. And if they do, they should have great encouragement on those days. But this morning, before we transition to chapter 7 through 20, uh, excuse me, 7 through 10, verse 20 tells us that Melchizedek 
is is the name we're going to get to know pretty well in the coming weeks. But before we get there, three compelling promises and reasons to have hope as you press on in your faith. First off, verses 13 through 16, I want you to see again the unfailing promises of God. He said in verse 13, For when God made a promise to Abraham, God gave his word to Abraham. He promised to bless him and multiply him. And the reason behind this was God's grace. God graciously gave a promise to Abraham. Now, we'll get to that in a minute, but he didn't deserve or earn God's promise any more than we do. Uh, Abraham was not living in a Christian home. He didn't attend church each Sunday. He wasn't singing in the choir or helping in nursery duty. His father and family were pagans who worshipped false gods. But God sought out this one man from Mesopotamia in the middle of the desert and made him one of the most important men in history. And so we go back to Genesis 12. And if you have your Bible... I'll go ahead and read ahead, but you can turn with us to Genesis 12, 1 to 3. I want you to remind you of what the promise is. It says, uh, God speaking to Abram, it says, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Seven promises he gave. He told Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. He told you, I'm going to bless you. He said, I'm going to make you a great name, Abraham. He says, I'm, going to, I'm also going to promise you that you'll be a blessing to others. And, also, and I will bless those who you bless. He also says, the opposite of that, he'll curse those who curse Abraham. But ultimately, the last promise he gave in Genesis 12 is that God promised that all the people of the earth will be blessed because of Abraham. And we know partly this came in fulfillment through Jesus Christ. We know that in Christ, God promised to bless this mere man and multiply his property. So go back to Hebrews chapter 6, and you notice in Hebrews 6, 14, it says, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. We just read that in Genesis 12. So how did he know this would come to pass? Because God guaranteed it by his character. That's why verse 13 says, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. In other words, there's no one greater than God. God can't go to a council of gods or, 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 or people. He swore by himself. It was a double guarantee, and Hebrews 6 mentions that. So in whom would God anchor this promise? It's nothing in this world. No one is greater than God. So God anchored his promise in his eternal, unchanging character. And this would only be fitting... For uh, the only fitting foundation to build a house of faith on. Though all peoples and all things change and wither and rot and rust and all those things, thankfully, as we believe, God never changes. Or so, Malachi would say, we would be consumed by fire. And James points out in James 1.17, those classic verses, he says, Every good gift, good and perfect gift, is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow, Due to change. This means as long as God endures, his word endures. So Abraham could trust God's promise as far as he trusted God himself. So when we read the Bible, we read the word of God that he is changeless as God himself. Why would he not be interested in such an enduring word? Why would we consider the promises of eternity of lesser value than things of this world? So does our neglect of God's word indicate a low view of God? Yeah, it actually really does. But I want you to also notice here the promise was great. But what good is a promise if it is never applied or obtained? Abraham, it says, obtained the promise. Verse 15, Hebrews chapter 6. And, and, and thus Abraham, having patiently waiting, 
waited, obtained the promise. Yes, he obtained what God promised, but he had to wait patiently, which is the kind of thing, honestly, if you're like me, you hate to do. I mean, but consider how patient Abraham was. We know from Stephen's sermon in Acts 7-2 that in some fashion, God appeared to Abraham while he was still living in Mesopotamia with his father, Terah. But as the story goes, excuse me, apparently in light of God's meeting with Abraham, he and his father left Ur in Mesopotamia and headed for Canaan. And it goes on in Genesis 11, they stayed in Haran for many years. And finally, Abraham's father, Terah, died. At that time, God called Abraham specifically to go to the land he promised to give him and his offspring. And roughly around this time, Abraham was 75. I mean, that's patience. And a few years later, in Genesis 15, God narrowed the promise to a particular son to continue Abraham's line. And yet again, Abraham waited. And he waited for the fulfillment of the promise until he's 99 or 100 years old. And the truth is, we, we do not know that during the times of waiting and patience, that Abraham ran ahead of God. He lied about his wife being his sister in Egypt. He had a relationship with his servant Hagar, trying to uh, uh, speed along God's timing with a child. But nevertheless, Abraham's willingness in Genesis 22 to offer Isaac as a sacrifice, even though that didn't happen, go read it if you forgot the story, his mature and deep faith in God's uh, ability and promise to provide was seen. I mean, think about it. If, if we need to go 25 years without seeing a prayer answered and waiting for God to open a door of ministry or, or, or for a loved one to be saved or through a difficult time or illness or adversity or opposition or even tribulation, whatever God has said to you in his word, he will execute it in its entirety. You, we can press on, as he told us last week, because of the unfailing um, uh, character of God. You have all the promises God needs to give you. And he is our good shepherd, and he won't withhold from us. He will meet all of our needs and the riches of Christ Jesus, Philippians 4.19. He is our God, he's our refuge, he's our shield, and he's our rock. He is our everything. So we are either obeying him patiently as we press on with hope in this world, or we are not. I mean, God has made so many promises to us in his word that he has recorded them right there. And, and don't forget Jesus' word in Luke 16. Heaven and earth will pass away before my words pass away. Look, you may have to wait for whatever it is, but just because we're waiting, the promise doesn't mean the promise will not come. And our faith lesson is simply this, is that when God calls you to wait, the wait itself can be used by God as a tool of grace to make you more like Christ. Christian friend, we should be diligent, to, we should be diligent because of the many promises God has given to us and I want to remind you that those promises have never ceased to be anything more than unfailing because his character is unfailing. That is, that is compelling reason, number one, to have hope as we press on the unfailing character of God. And so I want you to see, secondly, look at verses 17 and 18. You notice here, and we'll reread it again, he says in 17, So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Sometimes you just need to take a drink. And it says the sovereign, what I want you to know, and what this is saying is that the sovereign will of God is unchangeable. God doesn't have a plan B, C, D, E, or whatever. 
God has only one plan that came before the foundation of the world. And in his eternal purposes, he has a plan for Satan, sin, and human failure. God isn't the author of sin, but God has a relationship to Satan and sin about what he's going to do with them when his plan comes to be. But equally for us, because of God's unchangeable purpose, Christian, you should have a sense of destiny about your life. Remind yourself that Ephesians 1 says that you were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. And that Ephesians 2.10 says that he has ordained good works for you to walk in and do every day. There is a sense of eternal destiny in our lives. Uh, there's a sense where God is going before us to open uh, a door, uh, metaphorically, where no one can close and close those that no man can open. And as I go through life each day, there is not one maverick molecule, as R.C. Sproul has well said, in all of life. All of the events in my life line up under the sovereign will of God. That's why Ephesians 1.11 says he works all things according to the counsel of his will. No one is God's co-pilot or can grab the steering wheel. And that's why he tells them this. We'll get into what these verses mean a little more in depth in a second. But that's why he tells them, don't get sluggish. We must redeem the time because the days are evil. And because God's purpose is an unchangeable purpose. Guys, we're going to give an account to God, Romans 14, 12. So then each one of us must give an account to God. But we must do all that we do for God as we move forward with hope and faith in these turbulent times, just as they did, with patience, with endurance, and steadfastness. Why? Because the promise that God has made and the oath he's made, verse 17 says, is true. And furthermore, it says that God it is impossible for God to lie. God cannot sin. God cannot fail us. God cannot cease to be all he is. He cannot lie. He cannot be less than fully and perfectly holy. All he says to us is that he guarantees the truthfulness and execution of all things by his will. And that's why we, it says there, have taken refuge. We have fled or taken refuge, verse 18. Because God doesn't lie. Because he said he'd be with Abraham. Because he said the promise will continue on. He's with us as well. Friend, it is so easy to get caught up in daily stuff and cave into the pressure. And the writer of Hebrews says we should have a strong encouragement. A strong encouragement for the hope set before us. Look, if I thought God was changing his plan for me, uh, I would be sluggish. I would not be diligent. Why try if he's going to keep changing everything? But that's not what he says here. He promises you that he will carry you until the end. And there, there, there is mystery in God's counsel. You know, it's like trying to drink the Gulf of Mexico into a Dixie cup or put it in a Dixie cup. God has one plan and he's working it out. And you are being carried as well as I am. And this church is being carried wherever you are along in a wave of destiny and purpose and plan of God. You might say, well, what if I disobey? Well, you're going to. But God has a great way of getting you back in the ballgame. Go see Hebrews 12. But if he doesn't discipline you, you aren't his. And these five, these, these two verses here, are, starting in verse 17 and going down to verse 20, are one long sentence in the Greek. It's one great sentence of hope. He not only gives us amazing promises, but he establishes the guarantee. God confirms his promise with an oath. And so it goes on to say uh, there in verse, excuse me, there in verse 16, he says that uh, for people swear by something greater than themselves, 
and all these disputes an oath is final. In this text, we discover God compared the oath he made to Abraham with the practice of men making oaths, oaths to guarantee their word. They swear by something greater than themselves. That is a nice picture in the Bible. In fact, Genesis 14.22 says this, But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And this is where we get that phrase, as the Lord lives. We find that the formula in the Old Testament is a, uh, in about 50 times it mentions that. Therefore, to make an oath in God's name and then not keep it was basically like breaking the command and not to take God's name in vain. And so you have to know that everything we do goes back to who he is. That because he gave us promises, we can trust in him. You know, people still make oaths like this. When a person's about to go in America to a, uh, the witness stand, whether they believe it or not is one thing, but they repeat the phrase, uh, you swear to tell the whole truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God. And they'll put their hand up and on the Bible or whatever they do, yep, yep, I do. But then they proceed to lie and hope they don't get caught. They fear to be exposed as a liar will result in a charge of perjury. But they're not concerned at the least what God in heaven's doing. They're more concerned what that judge might do to them. And you know, it is interesting because every four years we watch a mere human take on an oath before the people and God to uphold the Constitution. And how sad it is to watch presidents act as though there's no God, that he made no promise, and he proceeds to dismantle the very document that holds that up. Look, when God took an oath on his own name, there should be no doubt he will keep his word. In reality, we need to take an oath when we made promises to Abraham. The heirs of the promise are benefited by God showing his character more convincingly. And so what I want you to remember today is that as we go forward, everything God has is in his hands for us. And we trust him by faith and faith alone. And so comprehended or not, we who have fled to God have strong encouragement to hold fast. We are the ones who fled to God. We flee to God when we recognize our sins against God and confess our sins because we believe his promise that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of all our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so that is the second point. The final point, the third point, the third compelling reason for hope I want you to see is the unforfeitable presence of God. The unforfeitable presence of God. Now, God's gift of salvation is as sure as our eternal Savior. Our hope is an anchor of the soul. And that's why it says in verse 19, we have the sure and steadfast anchor of our soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. The verse draws a picture of the old system of worship in Israel. And the people knew that the temples where they could find God. But only the priests could go to the holy place. You can't be like Uzziah, who tried to be a king and a priest, as was the king of Salem and uh, Melchizedek, but there was a there there was an area like an expression of the world in which the priest represented God to the people and the people to God. And that's true, but beyond the holy place was the holy of holies, where only the high priest could go in once a year with the blood atonement for the sins of the people. And in the holy of holies was the ark of the covenant with which the mercy seat sat on, and the mercy seat represented the very presence of God for the people. And Christian, that same picture holds a promise for us today. We live in a crazy world represented as being outside or separated from the peace of God. 
But we who have lived in turbulent times would have an anchor cast for us into the Holy of Holies. Our security is lodged until the mercy seat is said. Our anchor is set fast in Jesus Christ. And that's why he goes on in verse 20 to say, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. What's he saying here? He's saying that Jesus, our Savior, is the high priest who serves like Melchizedek. Melchizedek is a type of Christ. He's not the Christ or a Christ. He's a type. His, his character points later on. And, and so Jesus has gone into the Holy of Holies. He has taken his blood into the very presence of God, and he is our anchor. And so what we see here is that we live once again in a very crazy time. But we are secure because we've thrown the rope into heaven by which faith in Jesus Christ is made possible by his grace. So Christian, if you are united to Christ by faith, you are secure as Christ is. If you're united to Christ by faith, you're secure as Christ was. Well, guys, as we close out today, I just want to remind you, if you're listening to this and you are not a Christian, I want to encourage you to go to our website, towerofukc.com. At the very top is the gospel link. We'd love to hear from you. But I want you to know this. If you're not a Christian now, this is probably burning on your heart or soul. And so we pray that there would be great time to discuss or do whatever you need to do. But overall, this is what we believe. And so if the risen, reigning Savior, who is your hope today, and all the days after that, what have you to fear? Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for the time that these folks have helped with and, and, and brought together. We do pray, Lord, for all those who are listening to this uh, in the later days, that they would have a strong encouragement as we give to each other. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.